Hello, and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for anyone who loves cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Julia. Hi, Lauren. Oh, my gosh. This is exciting. There is a slide deck in front of us right now. <laughs> Which, as as we may have mentioned before, is not necessarily a, a, a typical occurrence on our end. We usually just kind of riff and we say things yeah. like, hey, Google this picture. <laughs> yeah. It may, as I said to our guest before, it may sound like we are presenting each other with, uh, you know, a slide deck of images and, and, you know, show notes and whatever. But it's just our the magic of our voices. It's also wait, just wait, that wait, we are... I, I, I need to go back to something real quick. There's a guest on the show today. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's out of the bag now. Julia, <laughs> who do we have? <laughs> you know him. You love him. Oh, He's of course. He's from the geek bracket. You know him from the gaming world. This is our friend and yours, Judge J.P. Adams. Hello. Welcome, Hello. JP. Yay. Welcome, Ladies, JP. It is, it is lovely to be here after being away for a little bit. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, had We're... a big relocation across uh, mm-hmm. the country, but uh, I'm getting settled now. I'm getting back to writing some more trivia to get back to working on the Geek Bracket and have some time to be over here. And I know we had talked uh, before I had to take my break about being on the show, and I'm glad that I have time to present for you all now. We are so happy to have you, uh, and we are so excited for your topic today, which is something that I know very little about, admittedly, which is not a surprise for a lot of people, but (laughs) as you talk about despising some of these things on a regular basis, but it's fine. It's fine. We're all learning. Julia, don't say it in front of JP. Uh, uh, In front of JP. No, (laughs) she's going to love it by the end. I, yeah. I will say I I am very aware with this topic. This is one that is much more in Julia's corner than it is yours, Lauren. So <laughs> that's I, okay. And and you know what? That's fine. Everybody has things that they're interested in. Some people are more passionate about other different things. But I hope by the end of the topic that we have today, you're just going to know a little bit more about it and maybe be interested in finding something out on the topic. I'm I'm looking forward to to doing just that. So I guess now is the time that I tell you that we are headed through the ABCs of hobby gaming. This is going to be so full of wonderful information. And just a visual component is so wonderful. By the way, we will be including uh, the the PowerPoint or the slide deck from uh, JP in our show notes if you wanted to follow along. Um, with the visuals uh, as we are right now. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll make sure that you have a share link. Uh, There are a couple notes that you'll see in there for me if you get a chance to read through it. So you'll see what I'm seeing on my side as well as the visuals that the ladies are seeing for the show. Amazing. So so prepared. Let's go ahead and dive in with these ABCs of hobby gaming. So first off, uh, a quick caveat. Um. We got to know the basics first. So this ABCs of hobby gaming is going to assume that you are familiar with the more traditional family games. Mm. So as such, I'm going to be skipping over a lot of those games. But if you are going, if you hear that there's a board game category in a trivia contest that's coming up, here are some things that you should definitely have in your back pocket and know. Know about the Scrabble tile values. Know how many of those tiles are in the game. Yes. Know about Monopoly. Know how the game was created. Know about the colors. Know about the various properties on the board. Mm-hmm. 
Game of life. Know the careers. Gob traps. Uh, I have no idea why people love this god-awful game, but people love this god-awful game. <laughs> it's because of the little pegs and the car yeah. and the spin. It's like and a the, it has some you 3D You go into elements. enormous debt by buying a house literally 10 spaces into the game. <laughs> I totally was not traumatized about like home ownership <laughs> from a young age because of this game. Anyway, moving right True. along. Uh, other things to know. <laughs> Trivial Pursuit. Uh, know the traditional and modern wedge colors along with what categories they go yeah. with. Clue and clue do. Know the weapons, the suspects, the rooms. Know the operations of operation. Know Yahtzee and how to score a game of Yahtzee. And then mm. also be aware of poker and how traditional poker hands are scored and ranked. So Perfect. those are your basics. Know your underlying basics. Caveat number two, my personal philosophy on trivia. My writing focuses on helping you be informed on the core pieces of a subject and focuses less on some of those further flung topics that mm. are not as core to the topic itself. So to this end, the ABCs we're going over today are things you should know and are formative in the knowledge of the hobby board game spectrum. Mm. We've all got favorite board games. I have favorites. Julia's got favorites. Lauren will have favorites by the end of this. <laughs> Probably. We'll see. <laughs> and I wish that I could have put, an all, put all of my favorite games on this list. But on the whole, the games, terms, designers, publishers, and awards that are on this list are the things you should know heading into a board game traffic category at a trivia night. Mm. Additionally, this means the games on the whole are going to be older rather than more recent releases. Mm -hmm. So there's not going to be so much Terraforming Mars, Spirit Island, and Brass Birmingham, and we're going to focus more on the Puerto Ricos, Catans, and Pandemics of the World. Excellent. Because I don't know any of those new game titles. <laughs> no, I was going to say. I was like, what the hell? <laughs> yeah, I anybody who's plugged into the hobby board game spectrum is going to hear those three titles and be like, oh, yes, I am aware of those, and they are excellent games. <laughs> um, but people who've been in the hobby board game space are going to know Puerto Rico, Catan, Pandemic, mm -hmm. uh, some of the other games we're going to talk about. Mm -hmm. So those are my two caveats before we dive. So let's dive with the first letter of the alphabet, and this is in ABCs of hobby gaming. We're going to take this from the letter A to the letter Z. So, A is for Ameritrash. Wow. <laughs> huh, getting right into it, huh? Getting right into it. What is Ameritrash? We'll get to this later. B. <laughs> <laughs> okay, love it. No, I'm, I'm on it. I'm on board. I'm hanging onto the reins tightly. And I'm riding this horse. <laughs> yeah, we're we're dropping like we're dropping seeds in there. We're dropping knowledge bits to follow threads along the line. You've got Loving a thread. It. What's a Maritrash? You'll find out later. <laughs> B, however, is for boardgamegeek.com. Boardgamegeek.com is a website that holds most of the knowledge on the web of board games. Uh, the users of the website work together creating a geek list, which is a list of the highest ranked board games according to users of the website. They have a lot of information about different games on the website, and it's a dynamic list. The list will change over time as people's taste in board games change over time and new games mm. are released. Additionally, uh, the website has a glossary of commonly used gaming terms, which I used as a huge resource for this presentation. Yeah. I also use Board Game Geek a lot at my job because I have to confirm maybe like years and editions of games um, or maybe designers of games and that sort of thing. And um, it's been really a, an awesome resource for me too. Yeah, like a lot of these like uh, public websites like Wikipedia and BoardGameGeek.com can sometimes get a bad rap because it is publicly sourced information. But 
when people are super passionate about a topic, they will make sure that the information is correct. So it yeah, is absolutely. a good resource for people to refer back to. And mm-hmm. BoardGameGeek.com is one of those excellent resources. C is for Catan. My favorite. You, Look you at like, her. This, this is one of it. your favorites? This is, my, this is my favorite board game. I love Settlers of Catan. This All is right. my... I get, I get heated about Catan. <laughs> okay, so a lot of this information then is not going to be uh, news for you then, Lauren. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was originally known as the Settlers of Catan, first published in 95. It won the Spiel des Jahres that year. What's the Spiel des Jahres? I'm glad you asked. We're going to get to that later. Um, <laughs> designer of the game was Klaus Tuber. Or Tuber. I'm not very good on my German pronunciation. Yes. (laughs) I mean... (laughs) Look, I I know that people, like, get read on this show for having bad pronunciations. I'm just going to apologize for my German in advance because there was a lot of German words in this thing. It's fine. It's fine. We're used to it. <laughs> yeah, we're used to it. Don't worry about it. We'll we'll take care of it for you. You've, you've heard me try to speak Spanish. And you've heard Lauren try to speak French. So I, I yeah. was going to say, I've heard Spanish. Uh, I've heard questionable Spanish and questionable French on this show. So let's throw questionable <laughs> German in with the mix. Yeah, might as well. Uh, uh, Tuber was not originally a game designer. Uh, his first career was actually as a dental technician before he started work on developing board games. The key resources in a game of Catan are wood, brick, wheat or grain, depending on the edition that you're using, sheep, and ore. All of these resources are used to build up uh, cities and villages on an Iceland-based island. This is also known as one of the best-known gateway games. We'll get to gateway games in a bit as well. Uh, For those of you who are going to look at the slide deck, there's a link here to a New Yorker article. That was an interview with Klaus Tuber. Uh, it's an excellent article, and if you have the time, definitely take the time to dive and read that as well. Ooh, I'm going to say something related now, too. So um, Mayfair Games, which was one of the first publishers of Catan in America, um, mm-hmm. I have their records It um, in the Library and Archives of Play at the Strong. Uh, my friend Nicole Pease, this wonderful project archivist, has been processing them for more than two years now. It's about 200 oh boxes of just records from Mayfair, and it's incredible. There's all kinds of game design documentation and like submitted things and staff and information and artwork and uh, rules and prototypes and all this amazing stuff so um, you know if you're interested in Catan uh, the Mayfair Games records at the Strong will be open later this year Oh, that's so cool. I, I now need to find a way to get to New York in the next right. like, year. I think you could figure it out. <laughs> yeah, You're resourceful. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's jump on to the letter D. It is for deck building games. So deck building games are where you have a personal deck of cards that you are using as resources to acquire other cards and add to your deck to make your deck more powerful and continue to earn more points and eventually win the game. The first major game in the deck building genre is Dominion by Donald X. Faccarino. It is also a Spiel des Jahres winner. Swear to you we're going to get to that at some point. (laughs) Uh, But there are more games you should know as deck builders in the genre as well. There is Ascension, which is deck building, but make it high fantasy. (laughs) There's Clank, with an exclamation point at the end. Uh, It's deck building, but make it stealing stuff. And then there is the quest for El Dorado, which is deck building, but make it a race through undiscovered jungle. I could keep going on this list, but the big thing with deck builders is to know you're putting stuff into your deck to make your deck stronger, to make it easier for you to get points and win the game. Mm. 
That takes us to E, which is for Euro games. That sounds like so, the opposite of Ameritrash. I was I have, just about to say that. Huh. Funny you should mention that. I wonder if that's the slide after this one. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, didn't mean to spoil anything. Oh, no, you're good. You're good. But let's talk about Euro games real quickly. Uh, this is a style of games that came to prominence in Germany around the 50s and 60s. The games in the genre are usually kind of abstract and focus on indirect player conflict, this is specifically because these were games that were marketed in post-war Germany during Reconstruction, so the games didn't want to feature a lot of the war pieces mm-hmm. that you see in American games that are produced Ooh. at the same time. That's so interesting. You, yeah, so there's right. a little bit of a divergence in how the games were designed, simply because of the place where the games became popular. Euro games typically include the following things in the game, but they're not limited to these. There's tile placement, so you're taking tiles and putting it on a shared board. There are auctions for resources or game actions that happen. Uh, There's trading or negotiation between different players. For example, in Catan, where you trade resources Mm -hmm. with each other, that's a traditional Euro mechanic. Set collecting, trying to get groups of specific things uh, to win the game. Area control, being the person who controls the most of a specific area of the board. And then there's worker placement, where you're actually taking your specific piece and using it to choose to do something on your specific board or the shared board. Mm. Now, like Julia (laughs) mentioned, Ameritrash is kind of the opposite of Eurogames in design. So like we talked about, Eurogames have lower randomness, abstract themes, and involved indirect conflict. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. low randomness... Catan has almost the same hex tile setup every single time. Yep. Abstract theming. While in the game Puerto Rico, you are cultivating crops on an island in uh, Puerto Rico specifically, because that's the name of the game. Um, <laughs> the crops are just different colored cubes as opposed to being like specifically this is a corn piece or this is yeah. a coffee piece. Like they're just it's a brown square and a mm-hmm. yellow square. Mm-hmm. And then indirect conflict. Uh, in the game Seven Wonders, you're picking up cards. You can't take someone else's card once they've picked it, but you can pick a card before someone else has the chance to take it. Because you can see that they need that card, so mm. you take it from them before they want it. So that's how the conflict is indirect. Mm, you're trying okay. to cut someone off or do something before someone has a chance to you're do play it. Playing defense. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Ameritrash or as they're now more commonly known, Amerigames, are somewhat of the inverse. Higher randomness, heavy theming, and direct player conflict. So high randomness in the game Dinosaur Island, which is a newer board game, uh, you roll dice every single round, and whatever rolls up on those dice, those are the resources people have to work with. Okay. Uh, Heavy theming in the game Dinosaur Island, there are adorable little dinosaur figures that are neon pink that you put (laughs) in enclosures. They're pictured on the slide if you do get a chance to read through the slide deck. And then direct player conflict. Uh, There's a game called Twilight Imperium where you are literally sending battleships across the galaxy to blow your opponent up. (laughs) Wow. Not subtle. Yeah. No. (laughs) Not subtle at all. Um, Neither game design versus uh, with Amerigame versus Eurogame, neither is better than the other. They're simply mm. different game design approaches, and both concepts end up borrowing from each other, as we're going to see as we look at more games down the presentation. All right. F, 
we're going to go for Fantasy Flight Games. This is an American board game publisher uh, based in Roseville, Minnesota, which is in the Twin Cities. Most of their games are licensed properties, but they also have a heavy focus on Lovecraftian-themed works. Uh, One of their biggest sellers is a game called Arkham Horror. Uh, It's a game where literally you are a person who lives in uh, the Northeast, and there's weird Cthulhu-y stuff going on. Wow. Uh, but Whoa. they also are the publishers of Marvel Champions, which is a deck builder game where basically you play a superhero and you put cards in your deck to do more superhero stuff. And XCOM, the board game, which is a cooperative game. What's well, a cooperative game? I'm glad you asked. We'll get to it later. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sensing a theme? Hope you are. Love it. Uh, <laughs> in 2014, Fantasy Flight merged with the Asmodee Group. The Asmodee Group is one of the largest international publishers and distributors of hobby board game. And in 2020, they sold over 39 million games across their entire portfolio. That's awesome. Considering that a lot of people think that, like, oh, people are only playing video games. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 2020 and 2021, uh, Asmodee has gone on record as saying it's some of their best years for sales in general. Wow. G is going to be for Gloomhaven. Gloomhaven is a legacy game, more terms to come back to later, published by Cephalo Fair Games in 2017. Uh, their main claim to fame is they are the biggest board game Kickstarter of all time. Oh, wow. There's, yeah, the sequel to this game, uh, which is Frosthaven, which we're not going to get to, uh, but Frosthaven, when it was Kickstarted, uh, ended up raising $12.97 million. Oh my god. Not only what? is it the largest board game Kickstarter of all time, it is the third highest Kickstarted project on the platform of all time. Wow. That's crazy. That's the, amazing. Yeah, so, many only, fans. <laughs> so many fans. So many fans love this legacy game, and I also adore it too. Um, the only two things that have outsold it are the Pebble Smartwatch, which is a smartwatch, um, and the coolest cooler, which is a neon orange cooler with a built-in sound system and a blender and... Yeah! Yeah. I read a whole article about how that was, like, basically a scam. <laughs> yeah. Um, you're not wrong because, yeah. like, only a couple prototypes got made and it never mm-hmm. actually went into production and the company exactly. is currently in litigation. Uh, which <laughs> makes... Gloomhaven and Cephala Fair Games unique in the fact that of the most kickstarted projects of all time, they are the only company still in business. Oh my gosh. Mm. Wow. Pe- uh, Pebble got bought out. I forget by who. I don't have my notes in front of me, but Coolest Cooler just went Yeah, under. collapsed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Had a cool idea, could not manufacture it effectively. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. More like Uncoolest uh, this- Cooler. Right? <laughs> Heyo. I don't I don't know. If I saw one of those coolers on eBay anywhere, I would probably spend money on it. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> don't get me wrong. I would want to blast some tunes out of my coolest cooler. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> <laughs> did that make me sound awesome? Did that make me sound hip? It sounded and cool? very, very hip. Yeah. yeah. I believe sound like my own grandmother. Uh, Lauren, I believe it made you sound cool. Oh, <laughs> watch out. The kids love this show, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> the second claim to fame that Gloomhaven has is it is currently the number one game ranked on Board Game Geek. It's held that position since December 2017, and it is, as you would say, very good. <laughs> I don't I don't know this one. 
We're gonna have yeah, to. I've never heard of it. We're gonna have to check it out. I bet it's, we have a, We have another close friend who is a big uh, Euro gamer, especially, and he probably has this one. Uh, I will sure. say that this game is an investment because of the size of the box. Let me oh actually gosh. Google that real quick. <laughs> How heavy is Gloomhaven? Uh twenty pounds. <gasps> what? Whoa. <laughs> What? Right. That's a, that is a toddler. What? <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, oh my gosh. The, the box is huge and there's expansion content. So the box is oh even. My God. <laughs> Holy shit. Wow. Yeah, it's, it is enormous. <laughs> but that's enough for Gloomhaven. We'll wow. shelve that and its 20 pound body back on the shelf. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll pull up the letter H, which is for Hans in Glück. So Hans im Glück is a German producer of board games, and one of the things is we've started to see this publisher start showing up on boxes in the States, but for the most part, it sells the rights to its game to other publishers to localize it in languages other than German. Okay. okay. This is actually a pretty common occurrence, and Julia, like you were saying, with Mayfair games, I'm sure you've seen a lot of this in the archives. Mayfair was the English publisher of Settlers of Catan, but they weren't the original publisher of Mm -hmm. the game. So, Carcassonne, which is a very, very well-known game of tile placing on the French countryside, was originally a Hans and Gluck game that was published in the States by Z-Man Games. And Dominion, same way, was originally published by Rio Grande Games. So a lot of these companies will make the games in Germany and then sell the rights to other publishers to localize it as opposed to localizing it themselves because it's just, frankly, too expensive. Mm, Okay. Uh, The company's name is taken from the Brothers Grim Tale Hans in Luck, which explains why their logo is a boy riding a pig. Yeah, I was going to ask about that, (laughs) JP, why there's a man riding a pig in front of me right now. But you know what? He's actually one with the pig in this logo. (laughs) Yeah, you can't see his legs, so he does look like some sort of... Yeah, the logo is all like this, like, off blue color. Yeah. So, yeah, you can't really see the legs. horrifying man pig man. Yeah. But uh, Hans and Luck uh, is a Brothers Grimm tale. Uh, he works and gets paid in a lump of gold, and then he trades the gold for a horse to ride away from the uh, place that he'd been working for years. He trades a horse for a cow to provide food, and then trades for the pig because he needs a travel companion, and then he trades for a whetstone so that he can make more income when he gets home, and then the stone just falls in a river and now he's broke. It is a mm. riches-to-rags story or anti-capitalist, whichever way you want to look at it. All right. Woof. That's <laughs> <laughs> heavy. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's the Grimm brothers. They don't, Yeah, you know, no, they, they're they not always true. a happy ending. Yeah. I is for Indianapolis. All right. Center of the country. <laughs> the beautiful city of Indianapolis. Uh, which is also home to Gen Con, which is the largest dedicated tabletop gaming convention in the United States. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yep. Uh, I did not get uh, attendance numbers from them this year, but they had their 50th anniversary a couple years ago. Wow. And you could not walk around that convention hall without being like 12 people deep in a convention Absolutely. Hall. Wow. Super That's duper cool. busy. Now, you'll notice I put the modifier... American and tabletop on that statement. That's because there are two conventions specifically that are larger than Gen Con that beat it in one of those two categories. Wow. 
So in the United States, the largest gaming convention, including both video and tabletop gaming, are the PAX conventions, which are Mm -hmm. PAX West and PAX East. Uh, PAX stands for Penny Arcade Expo, and the people who started that convention series were the people behind the Penny Arcade webcomic. Oh, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yep. Uh, the events, uh, they have PAX West, PAX East in Seattle and Boston, respectively. And they also host PAX Unplugged, which is in Philadelphia, dedicated solely to board gaming, but it does not out-attend Gen Con. Mm. If you're looking for the biggest board game convention in the world, you're going to need to go to the Essen Game Fair or the International Spiegeltag or Spiel. It is held in Essen every single year, and you see a lot of publishers debut stuff there. Man, the Germans, they just love their board games. God bless them. You yeah, know? They, they do. A lot of this industry is literally localized straight from Germany, just like a lot of video games were localized straight from Japan. The board game industry mm. is localized straight from Germany. Interesting. All right, that takes us over to Jay, which is for Steve Jackson. Uh, this starts tame and gets wild. Uh, Steve Jackson... Uh, founded Steve Jackson Games in 1980 to produce his own games. His most well-known creation is almost definitely Munchkin, which is the game of killing a monster, stealing treasure, and stabbing your buddy in the back. It is is a card-based game where people use their cards either to uh, help themselves out, help the monster that someone else is fighting out, or hurt another one of the players directly. Wow. Okay. Friendships have been... Friendships have been ended over this game. <laughs> I believe it. <laughs> I was going to say, I think my brothers actually prototyped this one in the 90s. <laughs> but uh, So Steve Jackson, the American one, is not to be confused with Steve Jackson, the British one, who is responsible for the founding of the company Games Workshop, which eventually became responsible for the creation of the miniatures game Warhammer. Well, that's confusing. Oh, yes, it is. Too many Steve Jacksons. Yeah, for the longest time, I thought this was the same person, and then I started doing research on the topic, I'm just like, oof, ooh, JP was wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And then this is where we go from even-keeled to what? Uh, he is also responsible for the court case Steve Jackson Games Incorporated versus the United States Secret Service. What? This is I'm tickling my brain the, a little. I'm going Please to read this directly me. from the Wikipedia page. On March 1st, 1990, the United States Secret Service raided the offices of Steve Jackson Games based on suspicion of illegal hacker activity by the game designer Lloyd Blankenship and seized, among other materials and media, the manuscript of GURPS Cyberpunk, which is a role-playing game yes. system book. When Jackson went to the Secret Service headquarters the next day to retrieve his book drafts, he was told that GURPS Cyberpunk was a, quote, handbook for computer crime, end quote, despite his protestation that it was just a game. Through the newly created civil rights organization Electronic Frontier Foundation, Steve Jackson Games filed a lawsuit against the government, went to trial in 93, and won the lawsuit, receiving $50,000 in damages. Wow. I bet I bet the U.S. Secret Service really had egg on their face on that one. You know what I mean? It seems silly. <laughs> yeah, you, you kids with your, with your game books, with cyberpunk criminals on them. <laughs> You're going to steal government secrets. We know it. It's a handbook for computer crime. 
but even beyond the weirdness that this is board game associated, uh, this was actually one of the first trials that the Electronic Frontier Foundation actually took to trial and actually took on. So this is actually one of their formative cases in wow. the founding of this organization. Cool. Takes us over to K for Wolfgang Kramer. Uh, or Kramer. Again, I apologize for my German. Uh, he is the winningest designer at the Spiel des Jahres Awards. I promise we're getting there. Wait for the letter S. Uh, the second uh, most winningest person at the Spiel des Jahres is Klaus Tuber, who is, yes, that's the Catan guy. Yes. Yes. Uh, Wolfgang's uh, five winning games are Top Secret Spies, Auf Ausch, Tikal, Torres, uh, and El Grand. He is also one of two designers to win in back-to-back years, winning in 99 and 2000, and 1986 and 1987. The only other person to accomplish this feat? Tuber. Klaus Tuber. Is Klaus Tuber. He did it for Hoity Toity and Drunter und Drüber in 90 and 91. So Uh, German. uh, You're spoiling. I'm going to get these for Lauren's birthday. Oh, no. Happy birthday. Oh, no. Here's Hoity Toity and Drunter und Druber. <laughs> oh, Steve will love it. You know Steve. He'll love it. Good luck the German version. Specifically. Oh, they're out of print? <laughs> I guess they're out of print. So. Aww. Ah. Some, to steal of them, from work. some of them. You might be able to find them still. <laughs> oh, we're going to tie back into a topic that we talked about with Gloomhaven and type about L4 Legacy Games. So these are games that you play with the same group or as close to the same group of people as you can multiple times. And as you play the game, the board game or the rules of the game itself change over time. So someone can add locations to a game board or you can get new characters that you have access to on the game board or areas of the game board can be taken away or characters can be destroyed and never be able to be used again. Uh, Yeah, the first game in this genre uh, was by Rob Davio and was Risk Legacies in 2011. This is actually one of the newer genres that we're talking Mm. about in the topic. Uh, Most notable in the genre is Gloomhaven, which we talked about. Um, The other one that comes up a lot is Pandemic Legacies, which we'll get to talking about later. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've definitely heard people tell stories of sending someone into an area with their character in Pandemic Legacies, knowing that that character was not coming out of the location that they sent them to after seven playthrough, seven game sessions (gasps) of the game. So they were seven sessions deep and they had to send a character in and watch them. Watch them die. (gasps) Wow. See, now that, that um, reminds me a lot of it. It has some connections to like D and D to a certain Mm -hmm. extent where you're really like, the, the story continues. You're not just like re- playing a, one game and then taking apart the board and then it's, you know, the same the next time or, you know, it's a yeah. new game every time. Also, this thing. is such dedication, mm-hmm. right? Like you're going to you're going to meet regularly and play with mm-hmm. these people and you, you get super invested. And then if they yeah. kill you off, that's not very cool. <laughs> no, I bet that ruins some friendships for sure. I mean, it, it's one of those things where you... <laughs> so you did kind of clue into it, Lauren. It does borrow a lot from role-playing games and the role-playing mm-hmm. genre. Like, when you're playing in a D&D campaign, sometimes your character has to make a heroic sacrifice and you're still there in the next session. You're just a different character in the next yeah, session. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And long live the character that had to sacrifice themselves, but they gone now. <laughs> yeah. 
Maybe we'll get a necromancer and raise them. The letter M <laughs> is for meeple. I love this word. Meeple. Yes, it's so it's cute. such a good word. And it's such a new word, too. Like, this word has mm. only been around for about two decades. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, uh, they are roughly humanoid-shaped wood pieces in various colors, usually to determine, like, area control or who's at what space on a board and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And the reason we say they're only about two decades old is the meeple wasn't really used until the game Carcassonne in 2000, uh, where we talked about French people are using tiles to make the French countryside, and the meeples show who controls what specific area of the board. Mm. Uh, it's kind of the unofficial gaming mascot at this point, just because of how ubiquitous it's become. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you're looking for a game that has the most meeples in it, because you need a lot of meeples for some reason... Uh, that game is almost definitely the game Keyflower from 2012. The game contains 141 wooden meeples in five different colors, plus an additional 120 wooden resource token bits. <laughs> wow. <laughs> now, obviously, this is less impressive in comparison to Gloomhaven's 20 pounds. Oh, sure. But Still. Carcassonne only weighs a pound and a half. The box for Keyflower weighs just a little bit north of three pounds. Just because of how many of these wooden bits are that's in there. That's a lot of meeples. That's, yeah, that's a lot of meeples. And, you know, much like with a, like a jigsaw puzzle, is it one of those things where it's like if you if you lose a couple of pieces, it's all over for you, hoes? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, is it, <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? Like, I, you gotta, I, I like, know I what gotta you're buy saying. a new one. I know what you're saying. <laughs> uh, luckily, there's a lot of places that actually just mass produce meeples in yeah. a bunch of different colors. Oh, sure, yeah. So you could just, like, go out and, like, uh, just like they're kind of like board game candy you just like Mm. i need need the orange ones and the yellow ones and the vivid Mm -hmm. pink ones but yeah all right so you can just mass buy them yeah exactly mass buy them if Mm. you want them but if you want a game that literally is just this is a box of meeples with a few cardboard (laughs) bites in it keyflower is your child all right good to know in is for netrunner uh netrunner is the one little, not exactly a board game twist I'm going to throw in this topic. Mm. It originally started its life as a traditional trading card game from Wizards of the Coast uh, in the late 90s. It was later revived by Fantasy Flight Games uh, from 2012 to 2018 as something called a living card game. Okay. So, so, in a trading card game, I hand you uh, a booster pack of cards, you open it up, there are X amount of random cards in the pack. With a living card game... I hand you a pack of cards, you open that pack up, and I hand someone else the same pack of cards. Both of those packs are going to have the exact same cards in it. Okay. Okay. So in a living card game, you can always guarantee that you know exactly what you're going to get, and you're going to know exactly what cards you have in order to build the decks that you're going to be playing with. As opposed to a TCG where you could buy four booster boxes and never get the card that you needed. I see. Okay. Okay. Uh, The game was originally created by Richard Garfield, which most people, I believe, would immediately associate with Magic the Gathering. Mm -hmm. But that's not the only thing he's done. He actually has a pretty big board game output as well. Uh, Robo Rally was his first board game, and he's also produced the games King of Tokyo and Bunny Kingdom as well. Bunny Kingdom! Yes, it, it... It is a game, uh, Bunny Kingdom is a game about uh, building up a mass amount of bunnies in an area that then just kind of explode all over the kingdom. Wow. Okay. I mean, it's it's right there in the name, huh? It, it do be right there in the name. <laughs> Netrunner is also an example of an asymmetrical game. Again, we're going to touch on that topic in a bit. Okay. Okay. 
Now, up to this point, I've had pretty solid ends for all of the letters. There are a couple of these letters that could only be one thing, and the letter O is one of them. Mm. Uh, there were a couple choices I could have chosen. Onitama, which is a two-player board game and talked about two-player games. There were a couple smaller fringe games that I didn't feel comfortable putting here. But I have chosen O to be for Peter Olotka. Peter Olotka isn't a really big, well-known name, but you should know the game that he is known for designing. That game is Cosmic Encounter. Uh, the game was originally published by Parker Brothers, but he founded, along with the other three creators of the game, the company Eon Productions, to start publishing the game after it got dropped by Parker Brothers. Mm. Uh, Fantasy Flight also picked up the license for this game, and from the original six aliens in the original Parker Brothers version... Across all expansions, there are now over 195 different alien races that you can play as in your game of Cosmic Encounter. Whoa. You could probably make up some and people might not realize. That yeah, you were not just even know. BSing your way through it. I mean, honest to God, like when you get to some of these later expansions, you look at these and you're just like, okay, so what exactly were they on when they actually decided <laughs> what these races yeah. were supposed to be? Mm hmm, mm hmm. All right, that takes us over to P, which is for pandemic. Oh, no. <sighs> not the COVID one. Oh, okay. I <laughs> love this game so much, but I have not picked it up since March I, 20, before the pandemic, ironically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so this is actually one of the interesting things is that everything that happened kind of fueled uh, purchasing of this game a little bit. Yeah. Crazy. Oh, boy. Um, but let's dive. A uh, game was created by Matt Leacock and published for the first time in 2008. The game was inspired by SARS, not COVID. Right. <laughs> and as of 2021, sense. has sold over 5 million copies of the game. That's awesome. Okay. We're now going to talk about what a cooperative game is, because Pandemic is the one that a lot of people point to as their first mm -hmm. cooperative game. So a co-op game or cooperative game is one where all of the players of the game are working together and you either win or lose against the game itself as a team. Oh, so in that's interesting. Yeah. So in Pandemic, you are working with all of the other players at the table who are all part of the CDC, and you're working to eradicate four separate different global outbreaks at the same time while also searching for a cure for that disease. Yeah, wow. it's a lot of fun. It's like you you are all a different, everybody has a different occupation and each of those occupations mm. can do like a special thing. So mm. it's like if you have somebody that's a paramedic, they can do one of these things. If they have a researcher, you can do one of these things. And so it's really useful for to be able to have their special skills within your game. And then you say, okay, well, you know, if I can get to this city, then maybe you can get your character over here and we can eradicate mm. this thing. And it, and it's really neat. I think it was probably my first cooperative game too. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Cool. Yeah. And then it also has uh, three different legacy versions, one of which is an award winner. We'll get to that later, but we did talk about legacies earlier. So this is an example of something that got twisted into a legacy. <laughs> Q is for queen games. Again, not a lot I could put I was here. like, I'm glad you had a Q. Oh, I had a yeah. Q. I, I literally did not have to think about the Q because I'm just like, <laughs> there's probably other things I can do. I'm just going to grab queen. It's fine. Yeah. Um, game manufacturer based in Troisdorf, Germany. Uh, they focus mostly on family or children's games, so lots of dice rolling, like uh, Kubo mm. or Escape, or stuff that's marketed straight to kids, like Banana Party. 
Oh. It's it's an adorable game of collecting bananas before your friends collect all their bananas. <laughs> uh, Queen Pretty game, straightforward. Yeah. Queen Games has also produced two Spiel des Jahres winners, uh, Alhambra, which is a game of bidding to place tiles from a shared board onto your own complex in a Spanish court. Mm. And then Kingdom Builder, uh, which is players using wooden houses across a randomized landscape to control the most territory. R is for Root. Uh, Root is a board game created by Cole Whirl and published by Later Games in 2018. We're going to touch back on a term we brought in earlier because this is an asymmetrical game, which uh, Later Games specializes in publishing. This Hmm. is a game where everyone is using different game mechanics to play the same game, but you're all trying to achieve a similar win condition. (laughs) So, in Root... Everyone is playing as different forces in a forest to somehow win the game. The Marquis de Chat uh, attempt to build buildings across the forest and expand their empire, utilizing multiple pieces right off the gate in the game. The Woodland Alliance, by counterpoint, doesn't start with any pieces on the board, but they use their influence to run guerrilla campaigns and sow dissension amongst the woodland ranks and then earn forces that way. They are adorable <laughs> woodland communists and we treasure them. <laughs> and then uh, as a final counterpoint, the Vagabond is just a single piece that is on the board, but they work with any of the factions on the board to provide them with resources to earn points for them or to cut off their resources to earn points for them. Okay. So everyone's kind of playing a slightly different game, but everyone's trying to win the same game. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. when people are like playing their own version while they're playing it, can things that they do mess up uh, other players' tasks? Absolutely. Uh, a lot of the times the Marquis de Chat will see that the Woodland Alliance is trying to start a rebellion in one of their territories and then we'll just move their pieces mm-hmm. in and just like try mm-hmm. to push that out before that they can succeed in overthrowing their control cool yeah which takes us to s everyone's been waiting <laughs> let's talk about spiel des Jahres. yes so this awards uh one of the top german board games annually to the best board game produced that year for the first time and it's also considered one of the top board gaming awards in the world. Mm. The shortlist nominees for this can expect a three to four times increase on their expected production for a game, and winners end up selling in the millions of copies worldwide. Wow. With Spiel des Jahres, you do have to realize this is specifically for the best German language game. So if a mm-hmm. game is released outside of the German language for the first time and is later uh, localized into German, the year it's localized into German is the year that it is considered for the Spiel des Jahres. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. And then Spiel des Jahres also has some special awards that they'll give out. Uh, the most traditional one used is the most beautiful game, which oh. we'll talk about now. Uh, some notable <laughs> winners. 79 is the first winner of the Spiel des Jahres. That is the game Hare and Tortoise. Uh, the first special prize winner for Solitaire Game was the Rubik's Cube. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And then we've got some gateway games in here. Uh, Settlers of Catan, Carcassonne, Ticket to Ride. We'll talk about gateway games in a bit. And then the 2021 winner of the award, 2022 awards won't be till this summer. So we have Micro Macro Crime City as the most recent winner of the Spiel des Jahres. 
Can I do a, pl- a related plug here too? Please. So, winner of the 1981 Spiel des Jahres for the game Focus was Sid Saxon. And Sid Saxon's papers are housed in the Library and Archives of Play at the Strong. And over the last couple of years, we actually have worked on a project to digitize all of his game diaries and put them online. And so now we have a research portal online for those. It's called the Sid Saxon Portal. It's saxonportal.museumofplay.org. Anyway, on that site, we have about 35 years worth of his um, professional and personal diaries. And so basically every day, Sid would sit down and write down every person he talked to every game he played Mm. every book he read and then at the end of every year he would go back and index his own diaries so that you could like actually go to the index and be like it's 1974 did sid play monopoly this year and you can go see like all of his mentions of it it'll be like yep february 1st february 9th march 3rd like it's incredible so we're actually doing also a transcription project with these diaries because, you know, it's one thing to have the images up, but um, it's another thing to make them usable and accessible for people, especially to keyword search. So um, at any given time, we'll have about five diaries up for um, transcription. We're kind of working, starting at the beginning, 1963, working our way through. So at this point of recording, we have five full ones completely done. So 1963 to 1960, uh, 1968 are totally available online. Um, all the transcriptions and everything. So when you keyword search anything on that site, um, you'll get all of the transcriptions for those. And um, we've had a couple of really amazing transcribers who are like super game enthusiasts mm. and super like Saxon fanboys that have been really helping us with this. And it's it's an incredible project. So I definitely recommend you check that out too. But um, if you don't know the name Sid Saxon, he's probably most um, probably best known for the game Acquire, which is kind of a hotel chain building game um, from the 60s that was uh, pushed out by 3M for their bookshelf games line. Mm-hmm. But he later went on to do things like Can't Stop and Focus and Bizarre and all of these really cool games. Um, he designed about 500 games during his lifetime and about 50 of them were actually produced and a lot of them are still in production um and there are a lot of people out there that are like super fans of Sid Saxon and another cool thing about him is he was like friends with all of these other game designers and had all of these correspondence with people like Alex Randolph and um gosh I'm blanking on some other names right now but um we have so many cool things um from him in the collection and and they're really evident on the Sid Saxon portal so uh yeah there's my plug sorry jp i just (laughs) (laughs) girl you got a plug and honestly that's really cool i knew when you said the name i'm just like that name is Mm -hmm. and then you said can't stop i'm just like oh my gosh i love that game yeah so yeah oh that's sick i'm gonna have to check that out later (laughs) yeah all right. Uh, there are two, uh, back to the Spiel des Jahres, there are two newer awards for Kinderspiel and Kennerspiel. Kinderspiel! I love yes. that. <laughs> uh, they were introduced in 2001 and 2011, respectively. Kinderspiel is for the best children's game, like mm, Kindergarten, Kinderspiel. And then the best connoisseur game is the Kennerspiel game. This also kind of reads as the best hobby game of the year. Oh. Uh, the Kinderspiel Award was a frequent special award for complex games uh, like Agricola, which we'll talk about later. So they officially made it a category in 2011. Nice. Spiel des Jahres isn't the only award you should be aware of. I'm going to speed through these, uh, mostly because I can't actually say the first one well. Uh, the Duscher Spielspree. Oh, gosh, I'm going to get red for this so hard. It's all right. No, it's fine. Um, this is an award uh, that comes from the German board game magazine Die Purple Review. 
Um, this game, in contrast to Spiel's focus on family-oriented games, Duscher Spiel focuses more on the gamers' games. So this is more of your complex games. Sure. Occasionally they'll award the award to the same game of the year, but typically it's a different game. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want to look at something outside of Germany, may I offer you the As Dior, uh, which is the Golden Ace from the Festival International des Jeux, held every year annually in Cannes, France. And then for American awards, you kind of have two that are notable. There's the Origins Award, which is awarded at the Origins Game Fair in Columbus, Ohio. The award for that is the statue of the Muse Calliope, who is the Muse of Eloquence and Epic Poetry. And then BoardGameGeek.com comes back in with the Golden Geek Award, which is given annually at BoardGameGeek.com. Con or BGG Con as it's called, and all of the users of the website Board Game Geek actually get to vote on that award as well. Oh, that's cool. Cool. Takes us into T, which is for Ticket to Ride. Yay! Another one I see we've got a fan of. Uh, designed by Alan R. Moon in 2004, players are attempting to build a rail system across the United States by making sets of colored train cards. Uh, there are other editions of the game out that take you through Europe, specifically Germany, or specifically the Nordic countries, but the main one that most people are familiar with is a map of the U.S. Along with Catan, this is considered the most common gateway game. These are typically games that have easy-to-comprehend rules to ease newer players to Euro-style games into the genre. Mm-hmm. So we talked about Catan does that for uh, a lot of the trading-style games. Ticket to Ride does this for set-collecting. Carcassonne is really good for teaching tile laying. And then we didn't get really into drafting games, but Seven Wonders, which is where you take sets of cards and pass them around, is really good for teaching drafting as well. Nice. Taking us to you for Uwe Rosenberg. Uwe Rosenberg is a game designer and co-founder of the company Lookout Games. He focuses mostly on heavier heroes with a strong emphasis on worker placement. His first game, Agricola, which came out in 2008, sees players using their workers to cultivate a farm and raise animals, and dethroned Puerto Rico, which was one of the earliest number one games on Board Game Geek from its position, and took it out of the number one spot from 2008 to 2010, when it was replaced at the top of the list. Want to take a guess as to what game beat it at the top of the list? Ooh. What year? Uh, 2010. <sighs> Your guess is better than mine. <laughs> I, I should say. Yeah, I was, you know, like, you know, the phrase, your guess is as good as mine. It's not. It's better. So, so you're welcome to guess, Jewel, because hmm. I couldn't even begin to think. 2010. I will tell you it's a game we've mentioned before. Oh. Was it Gloomhaven? It was not Gloomhaven. <sighs> oh, okay. Oh, damn. <laughs> Sorry, I tried. Gloomhaven is a number one game. So you did get a number one game guess. That was a good guess. Great. Ha ha! Good job, Lauren. I don't know. Thanks, Joel. I don't know the answer. All right, uh, I'll, I'll put you out of your misery. Uh, the game that replaced it at number one was Puerto Rico. Uh, oh. It actually beat it back and flipped back to the number just, one slot and dethroned it. Yeah, I know it's a trick question. <laughs> but I mean, here's the thing: someone at a trivia night is going to ask that question. That's true. People are going to be ready. We have Puerto Rico here. We haven't played it yet because you needed more than just the two of us to play. And Lauren refuses you, to play board games with us for some reason. I, I, so. I don't can, refuse. I just 
prefer I not like, to. Like, <laughs> like Bartleby the Scribner, I just prefer not to. That's all. <laughs> I was going to say, you can play Puerto Rico with two, but um, we talked about Munchkin ruining friendships. <laughs> uh, playing a multiplayer board game with just two people is also a good way to ruin friendship. Yeah, yeah. I can Especially imagine. if you're married and have a toddler. You probably... <laughs> Yeah, you need to keep that bond strong, you know? <laughs> v is going to be for Vlada Chatville. Uh, he is a Czech game designer and actually the founder of Czech Games Edition, who actually focuses on um, localizing and popularizing games from Czech designers. His most well-known game is undoubtedly Codenames, which is from 2015. We love Codenames! Right, 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 right. Yeah, Vlada is a name that a lot of people don't realize, like, how many people actually play his game because like a lot of people will just play like will grab whatever edition of code names yeah. they want and will play it digitally and he is making bank every single time someone does good for him Amazing. it's so much fun and it's like a it, like it's one of those games that you can just grab any family member and be able to play it it's awesome absolutely it's it is a party game for two teams attempting to signal words across uh, to each other to earn points and win the game. For those not familiar with code names, it did win the Spiel des Jahres in 2016 uh, because of when it was published in 2015. Well deserved. His, his first game, however, is a game called Galaxy Trucker from 2007. This is a game that is played in real time. So. <laughs> what? Yes. <laughs> It is a real-time board game. I see I have have Lauren's attention fully now. I lost her for a second and I got her back. So how this works. (laughs) Galaxy Trepper is a game where you are using tiles to build a spaceship and then send that spaceship on a trucking mission throughout the galaxy. You are trying to build your spaceship at the same time everyone else is trying to build their spaceship so you are all fighting over cargo holds and crew quarters at the same time and you're all just grabbing at this pile of tiles at the same time to find exactly what you need before someone else does and so you're all doing this at the same time and you have 90 seconds to build your ship (laughs) wow okay so i was imagining like real time i'm like i'm thinking like 24 you know what i mean Mm -hmm. but um (laughs) but yeah, that makes sense. Like where it's, I mean, it, the game goes fast, I imagine, <laughs> you know? It it does indeed do because uh, you, you make a ship and then you look at your ship and you realize, if I get hit by an asteroid on my right wing, the entire right side of my ship is going to fall off because that's the only thing yeah. that's connecting it to anything. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, you run into a meteor shower immediately and uh, <laughs> your entire ship gets torn apart in the wow. cosmos. Damn. All right. W is going to be for the letter wingspan. And before I go to the next slide, um, I will say one thing that you have probably not necessarily noticed as a prominent trend because I haven't featured a lot of this, but a lot of the designers and publishers that we've been talking about have been predominantly male Mm -hmm. at this point, which is why wingspan is such a cool game to talk about. So Wingspan is actually a Euro game designed by Elizabeth Hargrave and was produced by Stonemaier Games in 2019. Uh, this is the newest game that is going to be on this ABCs that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. This is an engine building game where you are drafting different birds to put in your uh, tableau that you have in front of you. 
And they either generate eggs for you, or they forage for food, or they just help you generally score points uh, to end up winning the game with these beautiful, intricate bird oh, images awesome. that are on all these cards. I was going to say that the, you have an image here of what looks like the cover of the board game, and it is extraordinarily beautiful, like this wonderful watercolor of an, a gorgeous bird. I, I wish I had the game box behind me. It's upstairs mm. on my game shelf. But every single one of these cards is that delicately handled and oh, that mm. well designed. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous game, along with being an incredibly brilliant engine building mm. hero. So much so that it did end up winning the Kennerspiel des Jahres in 2019. Uh, Elizabeth Hargrave is not the first female winner of a Spiel des Jahres award, but she is one of the more modern winners. And she is especially important because if you go to her website, she has an entire section of her website dedicated to women, non-binary, and POC game designers as well. Oh, that's, that's terrific. Amazing. She's she is an awesome awesome person, and if you are not familiar with Wingspan and you're looking for a good Euro, this might be one that you want to look into. Cool. Moving away from that, X is for four X games. There are four X's you should be aware of. This is a style of video or board game uh, that features branching trees of abilities. The four mm. X's are explore, expand. Exploit and exterminate. <laughs> oh my gosh. So oh, let's take those in turn. And yes, mm-hmm. I know these are EXs. There was no other way to get to X here. It's Catch fine. me outside. How about that? Children's, yeah, children's books have been doing this since the beginning of time. I think you're fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. X is for a xylophone game. No, it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. Stop it. So diving into these a little more, explore. Uh, a lot of these maps have uh, what's referred to as fog of war. So you actually send your scouts out over the map and you discover new territories. Mm-hmm. When you expand, you take some of your pieces and you move out onto that new area that you've just explored. Exploit, you're generating resources out of those new territories and using it towards your personal power and influence to eventually exterminate, directly take people out of the game who you are playing against. Uh, examples in the video game spectrum are Civilization from Sid Meier mm-hmm. and Command and Conquer. Board game-wise, we talked about Twilight Imperium very briefly. Uh, Eclipse is another one of those interstellar galaxy-style 4X games. Why mm. is for Yinch? Yinch. Not Yins. Yinch. <laughs> Not Yins. Yinch. Y-I-N-S-H. Um, this is an example of an pure abstract game. Uh, it has no real theming or basis in reality other than the pieces themselves do things. Uh, think like your goes, your connect fours, your okay. fellows. Like the board game pieces have their own rules and their own logic to them. Mm. Uh, Yinch is a game where you are literally like putting white or black markers on the board and moving rings around the. Uh, okay, I'm going to come clean. <laughs> This game is on the list because it has the letter Y in it. Um, it is <laughs> also fine. notable because uh, it is part of the GIPF, G-I-P-F project, which are all abstract games that use the same core of pieces. Oh. It's wow. fine. The game is fine. It sounds It sounds like to me, JP, like it's too smart for its own good. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like It's one of those I, like, look what we did. Right, exactly. I love what the GIF project was trying to do. I want to be passionate about Yinch. It did make the shortlist for Spiel des Jahres nominees in the year it came out. I've played it and like, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. Everything can't be a winner, you know? Exactly. exactly. 
that's okay. There's nothing wrong with it. Yeah, and it's like, <laughs> like we again, we're looking for formative stuff. We're looking for informative stuff. Yeah. Sometimes those formative and informative things are interesting abstract games with rings and stuff. If you yeah. rearrange the letters in the title, you can get the word shiny. That's yeah. fun. Oh, there you go. Huh? Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. That's I'm, something. I'm very bad at anagrams. <laughs> <laughs> it's five go. letters and I still couldn't do it. <laughs> it's all right. I didn't see it either. So. You can use it in Wordle. <laughs> oh, I can. I, I have I have set openers for Wordle, so no, that probably won't happen. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to wrap up the alphabet with the letter Z, which is for Zendo. I kind of cheated here a little bit. This is definitely something that goes against my personal philosophy, but I really, really appreciate this game, and I think it's important for two reasons. Um, first of all, this game is for the Pyramid System, which was developed by Andy and Kristen Looney, which is now sold as Pyramid Arcade. Uh, players use the Socratic method during the game to figure out a predetermined rule having to do with how the pyramids in the game are set up. This is an abstract game. Okay. Mm. But it's an abstract game that leans on Zen Buddhist concepts, which is what makes it cool. Wow. So the two main checks in the game are called Master or Mondo. Mondo being a recorded collection of conversations between a pupil and a Zen Buddhist teacher. And then the way the pyramids or game pieces are set up are called koans, which are questioning methods in Zen Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And then most importantly, Kristen, who we mentioned earlier, is actually the CEO of the game, uh, the game publisher Looney Labs, and is one of the few gaming industry female CEOs as well. Heck yes. Looney Labs is probably better known for the game Flux from 1997, which is a set collecting card game of ever-changing rules. There are infinite versions of Flux out there. You just need to pick the one that most interests you. Do you want a Star Trek version of Flux? That's wow. out there. Do you want an alien version of Flux? That's out there. Do you want <laughs> a... Oh, gosh. Uh, they put out one that was a Mary Bright Wizard of Oz version <laughs> recently. Wow. That's niche. <laughs> Dang. Yeah. Like, they, they have, like, literally... Pick a thing that you're passionate about, and they probably have a flux for it. And flux is wow. also a game that can take 30 seconds or 30 minutes. Right. It mm. is a literal okay. game of ever-changing rules. <laughs> uh, cool. Zendo appears to be like a distant cousin of Cones of Dunshire to me. <laughs> so oh. that's interesting that you bring that up, because people have actually um, messaged Andy, who is also one of the... Uh, owners of Looney Lab games and said, wow, Cones, when, why did you make this Cones of Dunshire game? The pyramids <laughs> themselves are from the late 80s and vastly predate the Cones of Dunshire. Wow. Maybe just inspiration. Right. It, it, it is interesting. Uh, the creators of Parks and Rec have never gone on record and said that, yes, they were inspired by the pyramids mm. from Andy Looney, but you look at how they're structured and how they're designed in that game. You look at these pieces themselves and you're like, yeah, girl, yeah, <laughs> come on, you know, come on. We, we know what's going on here. Yeah. Girl. <laughs> Amazing. All right. So that takes us through the entire alphabet. And as I'm looking at my timer right now, I actually got it at an hour. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> Yay. This was so creative and cool. Now we know our ABCs. Thank <laughs> you very much, JP. Oh, oh someone's got adorable. a toddler. There you go. 
I learned you, JP. so much great. from this. I was yeah, like taking same. notes. I was like, oh, we need to look into this one. We need to look into this person. Right. This and yeah. that's awesome. why I really wanted to give the link to this presentation at the end of this to all mm-hmm. of you, because I know a lot of people are going to hear, oh, that was such a cool game. What was it? It's so much easier to click a link and scroll through quickly and find the game than it is to fast forward back and forth in a podcast. Yeah. So if people can click through and access this, this is going to be available for people to view Please, by all means, use this as a resource. Find out about cool games that you are interested in playing. Steal this for your own trivia night. I don't care. <laughs> but seriously, like this is a resource that's going to be there for all of you to learn cool stuff about board games and also find new games that maybe you hadn't known about before. This is wonderful. Thank you so much for all of your hard work. This is just absolutely fantastic. And I'm sure our listeners are going to go absolutely nuts for it. Hey, I I am excited to have had the chance to be on. This has been absolutely amazing. Cool. So I hear that you have a quiz for us, JP. I do have a quiz for you, but I do have a quick follow-up question before we get to that. So, Lauren, Uh with everything that we went through, did you find anything that maybe you might want to try as a new board game? Maybe Um, maybe just once. Um, I, so a Gloomhaven sounded kind of, kind of metal to me that I was like, mm, yeah, I'll try that. You know, yeah. I'm kind of into that, that shit. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I have not played my Katana in a very long time. Uh, but cause it's hard to find people to play with, um, that aren't board game nerds or people who can deal with me being competitive. I turn into my father and I start trash talking <laughs> and it's bad. Like we almost lost, it's lost being friends with the Dugdales because I got like in Jimmy's face because he took all my, my, what I called sheeple. <laughs> and I was very <laughs> mad. <laughs> so maybe that's why I avoid board games. Yeah. because I'm afraid of, of because you're too <laughs> competitive. Yeah. Yes, well, exactly. That I'm afraid of just like burning everything at the stake. <laughs> like well, just... it, it sounds to me like you just need to kind of like kick back and experience a game for a bit. Yeah, I yeah. need to just chill out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sounds like to me that all you need to do is fall in love and play the game, which <gasps> means that our quiz today is on Queen and competitive reality television. <laughs> JP, that was so good. <laughs> this is going to be amazing. I'm so impressed. Okay, I'm ready. All right. <clears throat> Here we go. All right. Question number one. Play the Game is off Queen's 1980 album entitled The Game, but was not the only album they produced that year. Their other decade-starting contribution was in the form of a film soundtrack that will make you want to scream, Ah! What cult sci-fi flick did the band provide the music for? Question 2. At the inception of the Outstanding Competition Program at the Emmy Awards, no show could beat The Amazing Race on CBS. That reign ended when Padma Lakshmi asked Phil Kogan to pack his knives and go, when what other series won the award in 2010? Question 3. Excluding Freddie Mercury, name any two of the three other main members of the band Queen. Question 4. The Real Housewives franchise sees upper-class women from a geographic region compete to be the one to cause the most drama? Market themselves well enough that they get their own Bravo spin-off reality series? I don't know, rich people stuff. Excluding spin-offs, how many different Real Housewives of series have been produced in the US over the franchise's 15-year history? 
Question five. You got reality TV in my Queen question. What American Idol alum of season eight has been the frontman of Queen since 2011? For your entertainment, he's been performing singing duties on tours for Queen since 2011. I mean, what else do you want from him? Question six. You got Queen in my reality TV question. The newest Queen frontman from question five made the finals of his season, but failed to win. Instead, he lost to Chris Allen, whose best-known song would become Live Like We Were Dying and was one of many Woog Woog WG WG winners on the series, along with David Cook, Philip Phillips, and, in 2021 proving the trend isn't dead, Chase Beckham. What does Woog Woog stand for? Something you might often see on stage at a Queen concert. Question 7. Queen's best-known song is arguably Bohemian Rhapsody, which saw a resurgence in popularity with the release of the Mercury Queen biopic of the same name in 2018. What was the name of the album that debuted Bohemian Rhapsody, an album title better suited to the Marx Brothers, who inspired its name, or Pavarotti, instead of the arena rock realm the band usually inhabited? Question 8. Keep it short and sweet on the answer. What F Nation is the host to all current and upcoming seasons of the American reality show Survivor? Question 9. True or false? Freddie Mercury, who died of AIDS-related complications in 1991, never lived to see the last of the singles from Queen's final album, Innuendo, be released. And question 10. To lighten the mood after that last question, RuPaul's Drag Race has been on a local tear at the Emmys, so let's glance worldwide. I'll name four delicious drag performers, and you tell me if they're on a season of Drag Race, including international editions, or if I just made them up. A. Miss Coco Knot. B. Cornbread the Snack. C. Chorisa May. And D. Rita Baga. We will give you about a minute to think about this, and then JP will be back with our answers. Open up your mind and let me step inside. Rest your weary head and let your heart This is a very good quiz. This is such a good quiz. I this is such a good tested quiz. this quiz into the ground. <laughs> I love, 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 love it. It's so good. Okay. I, I don't know how many I got right. But we're, we're working work, as a team, Julia. Oh, yeah, yeah, this yeah. is a team. It's a cooperative yeah. game, Lauren. It's a cooperative game. You're right. You're right. I learned about this from JP. I should be more aware of that. 
<laughs> All right, are we ready to dive? Let's yes. do it. All right, let's dive. Uh, question one talked about the song Play the Game, but that's not what the question's about. We're talking about the film soundtrack that they released in 1980 that makes you want to scream, ah, what cult sci-fi flick am I talking about? I know this one, Lauren, do you? Oh, you do? Good. Yeah. What is it? This is Flash Gordon. <laughs> this oh. is Flash Gordon. Uh, the adaptation of this had been in the minds of Gino De Laurentiis since 1968, and he'd also produced the comics adaptations Barbarella and Diabolic for the silver screen. While Flash Gordon did well in British and Italian markets, it flopped elsewhere, but has gained a cult following since. The last name De Laurentiis is more familiar to the modern audience in the form of his granddaughter's work, his granddaughter being Giada De Laurentiis, for her work on Everyday Italian on the Food Network. With all of her can thousands you do your, of teeth. Can you do your Giada, Lauren? Giada de la Rentes? <laughs> and you put a bit of mozzarella. Uh, mozzarella. Yeah, yeah. Because she only <laughs> brings out her Italian accent. When she says she's, food she's, words. Yeah. She's like, so I'm going to salt this water and uh, we're going to put some spaghetti in it. And it's like, <laughs> it's like, bitch, come on. <laughs> bitch. Please. Girl, please. <laughs> I love it. Oh. Question two. Uh, inception of the outstanding competition reality program, No One Could Beat the Erasing Race. That ran ended in 2010 when Padma Lakshmi asked Phil Kogan to pack his knives and go. What show beat the Amazing Race? I'm going to let Julia take this one because I know this is, you're a fan. This is Top Chef. This is indeed Top Chef, which is more significant than just breaking the Amazing Race's streak at Outstanding Competition Program. Only four series have ever actually won this award. Amazing Race has won it ten times. Mm -hmm. The Voice and RuPaul's Drag Race have won it four times. And Top Chef has won it once, making it unique as the only non-multiple winner of the award. <laughs> oh, okay. Interesting. All right, moving on to three. Excluding Freddie Mercury, name any two of the other three main members of the band Queen. I mean, the I first one I, I know thought one. Of, <laughs> uh, it might be the same one. Yeah. Is it? I have. I've got Brian May. Right. That's that's the only one I can do. I also have Brian May. <laughs> he's um like he's a uh like a a neurologist or, or something or an astrophysicist or something. Yeah, he's like a genius. Got any of the others? Oh, ooh, uh, probably some guy named. Uh, let's pick some ooh, good ooh. band name. Mark guys. Mark. Oh, Randy. Ooh, Randy's good. Um, he plays the keyboards. Uh, Roger. Ooh, Roger's good. Roger's how a about, good okay, one. How about Roger and Randy? <laughs> Are we close? Roger's right. <gasps> First names only. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, but I would probably ding you on Jeopardy rules. Yeah. Here. All right, I'll put y'all out of your misery. Uh, Brian May, we uh, pulled out who is uh, one of the main guitarists of the group. Roger Taylor ah. is the drummer for the group. Uh, they still tour as Queen plus insert person's name here to this day. Uh, they've had uh, officially two different specific frontmen, but they have performed a couple one-off shows with people in the lead singer's lot before. Uh, bassist of the group is John Deacon, who hasn't played with the band since 97. He took the death of Freddie Mercury really, really hard. Mm. And so his last performance was with Elton John uh, on the show Must Go On at the Paris Ballet for its reopening. Oh. Um, but has not really been 
publicly out touring with the band since 97, still involved on the back end on some of the logistics and financials of the band, but not someone who's out with the group. Interesting. Okay. All right. Question four, Real Housewives, <laughs> how many series have there been in the U.S.? I'll give you within one on this. Okay. Okay. So I I, I was like writing down. To make a list. I okay. Yeah, yeah. Let, you tell me what you got and I'll cross out and tell you if I have any extras. Okay. So I have uh, New York. Yeah. Uh, New Jersey. Yeah. I've got Orange County. Uh-huh. I've got Miami. Ooh, and I didn't I've got, Miami. And I've got Salt Lake City. I know that that's a new one. <laughs> yeah, I had Salt yeah. Lake City. Okay, so Miami also. I There's definitely an Atlanta one. Oh, yeah, I forgot. Oh, how could I forget NeNe Leaks? Okay. Yeah, and I believe there was a DC one because you remember like somebody that was from it like, uh, like crashed the White House or something. Yeah. Was it real? Was it DC or was it like Virginia? Potomac? Of the Potomac. Oh, the Potomac. It's the Potomac. Yes, yeah. you're right. Potomac. Uh, so that brings us to seven. Okay. Uh, you think there's think anyone in Texas? You think there's See, any Texas See, I was Texas just about to ones? say, is there Houston? Hmm. Yeah. Real Housewives Why don't we Houston? just say... Okay, so if, you if say JP's going to give us one, why don't we say eight? Okay, <laughs> I like that. I like that. That's a good strategy. Okay, we're going to say eight. All right, so... Orange County, uh-huh. Atlanta, uh-huh. yeah, New York City, uh-huh. yeah, New Jersey, uh-huh. DC, yes, okay, Beverly Hills, Beverly Hills. Oh shit! How could I forget Beverly Hills? Miami, <gasps> okay. Potomac was a different one than DC. They what? were two what? different series in the same area. That's oh, insane. That's a- and oh. then Dallas and Salt Lake City. There are ten Dallas, series. Dallas, Dallas. Ten. I can't believe we forgot Beverly Hills, though. <laughs> I can't believe we forgot Beverly Hills, too. That's a classic. Yeah. Shoot. All right. Uh, well, we were two off. You were two off. You were so close. Wouldn't get yeah, me so close. But you were so close. <laughs> uh, spinoff series include Vanderpump Rules, Don't Be Tardy, mm-hmm. and The Real Housewives Ultimate Girls Trip, which is a crossover series uh, that is currently airing on Peacock. Mm-hmm. If you somehow like The Real Housewives series. Not me. Yeah. Not a fan. (laughs) Question five. Uh, Reality TV and my queen question. Who is the current lead singer for Queen and is an American Idol alum of season eight? Uh, That's Adam Lambert. And he should have won that season. I don't care what anybody says. I will get into the logistics behind why it was Chris <laughs> Allen in the next question, but you oh, are sure. correct. This is Adam Lambert. Uh, beyond his work with Queen, he has four solo albums, uh, For Your Entertainment being a clue in in that question, uh, being certified golden aria platinum. With Queen, he's been featured on their 2020 live album, Live Around the World, and does a great job as the front person for this group. Honestly, like he kind of is the heir apparent of Freddie Mercury with Queen mm. right now, and it's kind of crazy to listen to him in performance. Yeah, he's got an incredible range. Mm-hmm. All right. Question six. I'm going to shorten this down and not do the full diatribe. What's a wug wug? WG, WG. I know this one. Oh, good. <laughs> uh, yeah, because yeah. I was like, I, I don't remember. Okay. So, like, I love this term just because of the weirdness of it, but yeah. Julia, what you got? Uh, white guy with guitar. Oh my gosh, that's so good. 
It is white guy <laughs> with guitar. Oh, that's so, so true. For five consecutive seasons, starting with the seventh season on American Idol, a wig wig won the show. <laughs> Richard Rushfield, the author of the book American Idol, The Ununtold Story, said just before the season 11 finale, before it finished taping and airing and revealing that, yep, it was another one, he said, quote, You have this alliance between young girls and grandmas, and they see it not necessarily as a contest to create a pop star competing on the contemporary radio, but as who's the nicest guy in a popularity contest. Yep. That has led to this dynasty of four and now possibly five consecutive, affable, very nice, good-looking white boys. Who um, make no impression whatsoever. Well, I did used to watch American Idol. And yeah, so did I. the series with David Cook, I I voted for David Cook, like, a lot wow. on American Idol. I was a big, like, when his album came out, I... Got th- I downloaded them all on iTunes and all that stuff, and then I have not thought about him in thank you approximately twelve years. Uh, yeah, I'm so I glad. Get who he was up against in that season because I think I also voted for David Cook in that <laughs> season, if memory serves. He did some like really cool like acoustic arrangements of like mm. pop songs. Like I know he did like Billie Jean in like a cool way, and he did. I think he did Eleanor Rigby in a cool way. Like he just, I don't know. It, he had he had some real help from the from the uh, composers. Yeah, I remember him being like people were like, oh my gosh, he's so handsome. And then I remember looking at his face and I was like, yeah, but the it seems like the parts, individual parts of his face are handsome, but as a, <laughs> as a whole, as like a holistic face, there's something wrong. There's like, like, an a, AI, it's like a composite. Yes. Yes. It's like an algorithm created his face. It's very messed up. <laughs> Sorry, David, if you're listening. <laughs> Big uh, fan of our show. Wouldn't David it be Cook. funny if the first celebrity that listened to our podcast <laughs> was was like a C grade American Idol alum who listened to me just absolutely just drag him? Annihil- yeah. <laughs> oh bless. Yeah, it's, it would be fine. it's fine. All right, moving right along to question seven, which is a question about the album that Bohemian Rhapsody came out on. Uh, The album title is better suited to the Marx Brothers, who inspired the name, or Pavarotti instead of the arena rock realm the band usually inhabited. What is that album's name? Uh, I think I know this one. This is A Night at the Opera, I think. Is that it? Feel good about that? You uh, could because the only things I wrote down were animal crackers and duck soup, <laughs> <laughs> which are both, which are both, uh, you know, Marx Brothers movies. So you're not wrong. Um, it's the it's honestly it's like the besides like the self titled albums it's the only other Queen album I know. So I can't even make it. Night at the Opera. Yeah, no, it, it is a Night at the Opera. Okay, uh, I had to put. So the reason is is there is another Marx Brother inspired uh, Queen album called Day at the Races. So oh, the Pavarotti yeah. part is in there to lock it into just that album. Thank you. I see. I see. Thank you. Yep. Bohemian Rhapsody (laughs) still ranks as one of the best songs of all time at number 18 on the Rolling Stone list. And as of 2018 was the most streamed song of all time, according to The Guardian, having been streamed over 1.6 billion with a B times. Wow. That's that's amazing. I believe it, though. I mean, it's a great song. It's a great song. 
Yeah, and like ev- everybody just headbangs to that. Everybody has to headbang to it when it <laughs> you comes have on to. the car. It's, so it's good. not an option. You have your hands on the wheel, sure. Like just look up every single time <laughs> you're done on the headbang. Exactly. All right, number eight, short and sweet. What F Nation is the host for all current and upcoming seasons of the American reality show Survivor? I have an idea, Lauren. Do you? Yeah, I, I, um, yeah. Say what, say what you have. One, two, three. Fiji. Fiji. <laughs> short and sweet. Fiji has played host to nine current seasons, and a tenth is to be released later this year. Uh, Fiji is also a member of the Commonwealth of Nations. Uh, Other nations in the South Pacific uh, include Vanuatu, uh, Tongo, Tuvalu, Papua New Guinea. All of these have also been uh, recording locations for different versions of Survivor over the years. Hmm. I mean, when else are you going to get to visit there, you know? Right? Truth. Might as well get CBS to pay for it. (laughs) That's true. It's like you get voted off? Congratulations. Luxury vacation. That's good. (laughs) Yeah. Done. (laughs) All right, number nine, true or false? Freddie Mercury, who died of AIDS-related complications in 91, never lived to see the last of the singles of Queen's final album, Innuendo, be released. This was a real, like, coin flip for me. I I put true. I'll say, yeah, I'll agree. I'll say true. Okay. So, um, Mercury passed on November 24th of that year. Uh, These Are the Days of Our Lives was released in September 5th in the U.S., and the show must go on was released in October 14th in the UK. So this ah, is false. He okay. was actually still alive. Okay. Um, both songs would be released in December and January, respectively, in their other territories. Mm. Mm. Uh, so they just kind of crossed over the ocean as kind of memorial albums. On sure. a not connected note, PrEP stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis and is used for a medication to prevent the spread of disease in people who have not been exposed to a disease-causing agent usually a virus. This term typically refers to specifically the use of antiviral drugs as a strategy for HIV AIDS prevention. If you are sexually active and are not on PrEP, please ask your doctor about it the next time you go in for a checkup. And this is not, this is not sponsored. <laughs> this is not sponsored. This is just a girl. No one Yeah, this. please, <laughs> please. Also, not for nothing, it is astounding to me in our lifetime that the AIDS used to be an absolute death sentence. Mm-hmm. Like, if you contracted the HIV virus, that was it. You were dead. And it is astounding to me how we have gotten, in terms of technology and science, to now it is, you know, there are so many treatments and so many ways, and there's, like, now there's talk about it being cured in people. It's just amazing. Yeah, we had, so incredible. obviously, this is going to time date this a little bit, but there was that, um, there was the study from the New York patient that just happened very, very recently. Yeah. And it's, it's amazing with those same advancements that people have gone from it being a death sentence in the 80s to now you are undetectable. And if you're undetectable, you are uh, untransmittable. And so, like, like, people are just medically living with a condition and we should all just be doing our part to keep ourselves healthy and keep doing the research that needs to be done on this disease. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Completely disconnected from the topic we were talking about, but it's it's an important, <laughs> important. one to have shoehorn it, it in somewhere. It's important. Mm-hmm. All right. Question 10 to lighten the mood. I've got some drag queens here and I want you to tell me, have they been on an international or US-based edition of Drag Race or if I just made them up? Oof. These Starting are from, very good. <laughs> oh yeah, no these these are, are all so great good? names. Uh, we'll start at the top with Miss Coco Knot. Okay, here's my issue. I've watched 
all of UK and uh, almost all of the US, but I have not watched any non-English speaking uh, RuPaul's Drag Race series yet. So I am behind the eight ball on this one, if you will. I'm going to say Miss Coco Knot is, uh, is something that you made up. Okay. Julia, you can I think it's real. Miss <laughs> ah! <laughs> Coco Knot is a lovely play on words that was on play and repeat on my head as I wrote this quiz trying to come up with fake <laughs> answers. So I made it a juke and tried to get you to get the question wrong. <laughs> Point for Lauren. Yes. All right, next queen coming up to the stage, cornbread with a K, quote, the snack. Um, I have heard of this queen, so I'm going to say yes, she is real. Well, since Lauren's heard of her. Yeah, <laughs> yeah this, this, one's, this one's definitely recency bias. Cornbread the snack jeté is a queen that is on the current season of the U.S. version of Drag Race and was the winner of the season debut. Uh, as she is on a currently debuting season, no other details at this point because that's spoilers, so I will not discuss any more of that season. Thank you. Thank Love you. it. Yeah. Question three, Chorisa May. It's um, so funny. This, I was laughing I, the rest of the question. This <laughs> queen, this whole queen, she's amazing. She's Spanish. And Chore- well, the first time she introduced herself as Theresa May, I, I had to pause. I was laughing so hard. It's so, it's just such a good drag queen name. Um, she's 100% real. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, I mean, like, that takes all of my flavor text. Spanish transplant <laughs> to England and contestant on the third season of Drag Race UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, name is a reference to Theresa May and Theresa the Sausage, reflecting her Spanish heritage. <laughs> uh, finishing in joint sixth place with fellow contestant River Medway when there yeah. was a double elimination. And if Unfair. Double elimination. Uh, I don't know. See, uh, I, I River know. for sure needed to go home. River was not up to snuff, but Teresa was was good. I felt like she deserved at least one more episode. But yeah, it, we can argue the merits of that at another time. <laughs> another <and> also, time. <laughs> everything that happened there, another time. So does RuPaul uh, host all of them? No. No. Okay. It's just like oh, select few. Yes. The name has been licensed to. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. And then. That will wrap us up with num- with our final queen coming to the stage, Rita Baga. So uh, I'm so torn on this one because I don't remember a queen being named Rita Baga. I know that there's Bag of Chips. Um, <laughs> who was on this and didn't get, make the who, cut. Yes, who didn't make the cut because she's, she's quite famous in her own right. Um, but I don't... Uh, but she definitely could be on like Holland or Canada or something that I just haven't got to. So I'm going <laughs> to. This is Lauren. Lauren. This is my thing. Yeah. You're three for three. Ah, don't do this to me. I'm going to say. I'm going to say she ain't real. Mm. She ain't real. Rita Julia, Bege. you want to? Yeah, I'm going to say she's not real either. Rita Bega is a Quebecois queen who is on season one of Canada's ah, Drag Race. No! Oh, I feel I should have started Canada's Drag Race. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she was a finalist for the Crown, finishing runner-up to eventual series winner Priyanka. Mm, <sighs> dang, dang, oh, that dang, was dang. good. 
That was, that was so good. good what JP. a great quiz. I would expect nothing less from you, JP. This was a fantastic episode. Thank you so much oh my for gosh. being on the show. It has been my pleasure. And I do have to shout out a couple people who helped me please, with this please. presentation, um, uh, which is uh, Jay Borsum over at Liquid Courage mm. uh, helped me out with this. Uh, other friends of mine, Joe Klopchik, Matt Kirk, uh, Travis Gibson, all helped me with the final edit. Uh, the presentation would have been nearly twice as long without them so i am very appreciative for their help with this and then as a final shout out if you haven't checked out the geek bracket i'm not producing any new episodes right now so now is a great time to go catch up on everything that's over there uh we focus mostly on exactly what the title sounds like it's a five round geek trivia podcast so we're not focusing on a lot of your harder academic subjects we're focusing on a lot of your pop culture style stuff so if that's your jam or you're looking for a show to study material from check it out it's it's very so good. much fun like it is. i love your um category titles mm-hmm. and the questions that jp and any other contributors come up with they're so much fun and, they're great and if you start in season two you might hear some familiar faces huh. at some point huh i wonder yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we loved it um, Oh, yeah, it was wonderful. Thank you so much again, JP. Um, we will have the link for his wonderful visual uh, presentation. Um, we'll have that in the show notes, and we'll also um, put it on our social media as well, um, just in case people don't get a chance to see that directly in their feed. Um, and, uh, yeah, thanks so much, JP, and thanks, everybody, for listening. Yes, yeah. and we'll catch you guys next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.